Romans chapter 8 from verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labours with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Amen. Let's pray once more. O Lord God, that sovereign grace which is in Christ is our hope, is our heavenly birthright if chosen by you, is our delight when we know it, is our continuing foundation for all our hope and expectation. Lord, will you make clear more about your saving dealings with your beloved people even now? Show us what it means to walk in your ways. Guard our minds now, or guard against all those temptations, all those distractions by which we might be dragged down or turned aside. We know how the devil loves to disrupt, to snatch away, to afflict. Lord God, may we even now lift up pure hands before you and with pure hearts come to understand your truth. Lord, bless us and guide us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's good and it's proper for God's people to be well grounded in the truth. True religion was not designed to undermine our confidence, to keep us in a constant state of doubt and fear. The Lord loves to see his people well assured, truly confident. 
And that confidence, that understanding of our relationship to God, that happy experience of communion with the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit is uh, the cause of so much then of our peace as Christians, our joy as God's people, the courage with which we face this world, the obedience which we render to him and the praise which we offer to the God of our salvation. When we know that we are God's and that he is ours, these are the things that blossom much more readily and sweetly in our lives. And here, as in in other places in the scripture, God speaks not by any means to unsettle his people. We do, as God's children, have a peculiar knack for twisting what God says to our own trouble rather than taking it and appreciating it and enjoying what the Lord has said. So what the the God of heaven and earth says through the Apostle Paul here has, by intention, the aim of establishing and encouraging God's people. It recognises that there are trials, that there are troubles, and that there are temptations in this world. And God speaks through his servant in order to enable us to put down our anchors in God himself, to be confident with regard to his work for us in Christ Jesus. And in order to do that, at the end of the reading that we had, verses 28, 29 and 30, Paul presents for us a series of divine acts. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And when you know that, when you grasp that, body and soul as it were, mind and heart, then it will do you good. Here is God the Father, through his Son, by his Spirit, impressing upon our hearts the way in which he has dealt with his people for salvation. This is distinctly Christian in that sense. Some of it may be familiar to some of you. Some of it may be very familiar to several of you. But familiar does not mean no longer needful. You think even of the Apostle Peter who said, while I am in this tent, I will stir you up by way of remembrance. There are things that we know that seem to drift away from us. There are things that perhaps once we knew by experience that now we may acknowledge intellectually, but we've lost our present sense of them and the joy that comes with them. And so Paul keeps bringing these Roman believers back to the things of which they can be assured. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
What I want to do then over the course of this evening and the next few weeks as God enables me and sustains me is to help us as a congregation here to see salvation as the work of God and to see it in relation to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. There is doctrine here. There is teaching But it's very easy for us, I think dangerously easy, even when we are considering such wonderful and profound things, to think of them in a merely academic sense. And that, to some extent, carries it outside of our experience, but most dangerously, it detaches it from the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Because salvation is not a thing. Jesus Christ is is our saviour and salvation is what he has accomplished it is his gift to us and we know it and we enjoy it as the fruit of our relationship to Christ Jesus if God foreknows and predestines is that apart from Jesus Christ or did he according to Paul in Ephesians 1 choose us in him before the foundation of the world What does it mean to be justified? Yes, it means to to be declared righteous in the sight of God. But on what basis? Because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which has been given to us and in which we stand clothed in the presence of God himself. When you're called, to whom are you called? You are called by the Father to his Son that you may be justified. And having been justified, will you also be glorified? Yes, you will bear the likeness of the heavenly man. All of our salvation is and needs to be seen in relation to Jesus Christ. That is what makes it so sweet to us. And that helps us to understand how we obtain it and what it really means. And working through this, we're going to plug in as we go some of the responses that we make to the acts of God in Christ Jesus. To try and see something of that that whole framework of God's gracious dealings with us in Christ Jesus. I I think it was Sinclair Ferguson years ago now. He said something like this that we shouldn't think of grace as a commodity, that it's, it's not just part of a formula, that it's not some sort of mathematical quantity in an equation. Grace is God's favour in Christ Jesus. And in the danger of depersonalizing salvation... What I want to seek to do, God helping me, is, is to properly personalise it so that we may see what God does because of Jesus Christ. So to begin with this evening, let's consider briefly what God's ultimate purpose is. We'll begin with our confidence, and we've hinted at this already. Our confidence If you are a Christian, that you can step into the opening words of verse 28 of Romans 8. And we know. And we know. Brothers and sisters, we do not guess. 
We do not hope in the worldly sense, vague possibilities. We do not merely wish that certain things were the case. That we, as God's people, can come with absolute certainty and full conviction that we do not need in any way to be shaken or doubtful with regard to the things that follow. We are sure the truth, and this is the sense of the language, the truth has become clear to us. We have learned that these things are so. Now, how do we learn? Well, we learn by instruction. We learn by the preaching of God's word and the instruction of God's mature saints. We are taught in accordance with the scriptures. And that teaching can come in various ways. Some of you will know there are different branches of theology. I'll make one up to start with. I'm going to call it exegetical theology. That is, if you like, the, the truth as it arises out of any particular point in the scriptures. Although in, in truth, all of scripture is exegetical. But you can, as it were, dive into any portion of God's word. And as you unpack that accurately, out of it will come this truth concerning the way God deals with sinners. There's what's sometimes referred to as biblical theology. That sense of the overarching progress of God's revelation. The unveiling of his kingdom and its advance. So that things become more and more clear as God deals over time. And so you see the whole, the whole plan and purpose of God unveiled by stages through the scriptures. There's systematic theology where you can zero in and say, what is everything that God has revealed about this truth or this truth or this truth or this truth? And it's necessary, whether or not we, we understand some of those distinctions, that the word of God be taught to us so that we can see how all these things unfold, hold together, spring out of the text so that the, the whole scope of salvation is before us. We learn then, it becomes clear to us when we are instructed. It becomes clear to us by our own study. We ought to search these things out for ourselves. Not everybody will be able to dive as deep you all jumped into the deep end of the swimming pool. Some of you would go straight down to the bottom. Hopefully, most of you would come back up again. Some of you would be splashing around on the surface. Some of you need to hold your noses to go down a few feet. Others of you would just, you know, do a duck dive and you'd be straight down on the bottom. You have different measures of training and different capacities. That's perfectly fine. But if you are a child of God, you are a theologian. You are a learner and a student of God himself. And that doesn't mean, again, God in the abstract. It is God and your God, your heavenly Father, so that you should be seeking out these things and you should be using the, the means available to you, your own Bible study. You're pleading with God to open your eyes that you may behold wonderful things from his law, the books that are available to you, the sermons that you can listen to. The truth becomes clear to us by meditation. This is one of the great missing points in the modern church of Jesus Christ. We can read scads of material. You can open up a thousand web pages. There's, I think I'm right in saying that there, there are more words, this may have been true a few years ago, I don't know if it's, it's still the same, 
but uh, it was the weekend edition of the New York Times. Perhaps you remember those big sort of Saturday editions where there'd be the broadsheet and then the sports supplement and the culture supplement and about four magazines. Apparently there were more words in one New York Times weekend edition than Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest of the American theologians, had in his entire library over the course of his lifetime. So we get a lot of data. We have a lot of words available to us. If you asked me, where can I go to study some of these things, I could reel off 10 or 15 books almost off the top of my head and say any one of these would be a blessing to you. But how much do we actually stop and think about them? How much do we prayerfully ponder the truth of God? How much do we, having read, stop and think and ask God for understanding that our hearts may burn within us? And then it becomes clear to us by experience. Because God's people live this. We we know this because it is our life. We have felt it. We've begun to enter into it. This is what is happening to us. And it's part of our day-by-day understanding of and relationship to God in Christ. We are proving what we know. Christian, friend, brother, sister, you can know. You don't have to remain trapped in doubt and confusion. More than that, you should know. God has not left you stumbling in the darkness. He's provided all that is needful for you to have this measure of confidence. And if you're one of God's people, then you do know. You understand at least some of these things. And you do not need and should not remain mired in in doubts and confusion. Do you know? Do you know God in his dealings with your soul? I pray that you do, and I pray that you would more and more. What is it then that we know? If this is our confidence, what is it of which we are confident? What are we persuaded of? Three things. God's control, first of all. Then God's call, and ultimately God's Christ and our conformity to him. First of all, we know God's control. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We know then the reality of divine government in the world that God has made. We know that everything that God has called into existence and all the things that are upheld by the world of his power are directed by his wisdom and goodness to certain appointed ends. Providence is purposeful. It is moving in a certain direction. If it's not, it's mere fatalism. It's more Islamic than Christian. It's... it's The idea that maybe something's going on and there's a great plan out there and maybe we're a part of it. Or or perhaps even just sort of pawns on the divine chessboard. But this is, remember, personal. We know that all things work together for good. The government of this world is is not passive. God is engaged and it is not aimless and pointless 
It is moving in a particular direction. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that we know that this divine providence, this divine control of all things is universal. It really is everything. The best of things that happen to you and the worst of things that happen to you. That's hard to take sometimes, but it's what we know. That you can survey your entire life. The things of which you're aware. But you need to take into account the things which you've never really grasped, that you haven't even seen. All of those things are comprehended in God's providential government. The best of things, as we measure them, and the worst of things. The things that you can see, and the things that you cannot see. The things that belong to heaven, and the things that belong to earth. The things that are righteous, and remarkable as it may seem, the things that are sinful. Now that doesn't carry us back to Romans 6, let us do evil that good may or grace may abound. But it does mean this, that as Joseph was able to say to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, such is the wisdom and goodness of the Almighty, that not only the sins that are committed against us, but even the sins that we ourselves commit, ultimately will secure God's good purposes. (coughs) Never use that as an excuse for transgression. But rather let it humble you that God is ordering all things. What men do, what human beings do, what angels are directed to do, what even the demons do, all things fall under this statement. Every creature and all their actions are comprehended in this. We know that all things work together for good. This is universal control and it is substantial control. By this I mean that it's, it's real, it is active. There is a deliberate coordination and cooperation by means of which all these things contribute to a certain end. Everything in God's world contributes, is pressed into service. And it is compounded then by divine wisdom. I don't know if you've ever looked into a a particularly fine watch. Not one of these. I mean, we we like our modern digital watches, but I don't know if you've ever taken the back off a proper piece of craftsmanship. And these tiny, tiny cogs and wheels. Sometimes it's it's the smallness of something that impresses us. You can look at a a great piece of machinery that has its own splendour of magnitude and you think, how does all of that work together? Perhaps you watch those videos online where you you follow a production line and and there's all things being stamped and pressed and processed and rolled and and out of it comes out this wonderful product and you're amazed at how it all fits together. Or you look down and you, you go through the microscope and you see this intricate piece of machinery. 
And though you can't even work out all the connections and how part A connects to part B, which drives part C, which has an impact on part D, that ultimately makes these things happen, you see how it is all working together. What you can see is that all of these parts are all moving, and somehow they all have an impact upon one another. And the government of God's world is like that. There's not a thing that happens in this world that in itself and in relation to all the other things with which it is connected is not part of this great purpose. The marvel of it is that God brings good out of it. It is beneficial. Perhaps you've done something like this in in chemistry. Probably not allowed to, but it's possible. Suppose your chemistry teacher were to take you into the laboratory when school starts again and to say, right, I've got ten poisons in these vials. I want you to take ten millilitres of each of these poisons and to put them together. So you take ten of poison A, ten of poison B, ten of poison C, you work your way down and your teacher says, now I want you to drink what you've just mixed. I want you to drink those ten poisons. Who would drink the ten poisons? <laughs> William's hand goes straight up. <laughs> well, William would be fine if they're the right ten poisons. Because it's quite possible that by mixing those ten particular poisons together in those particular proportions, what you produce is a perfectly healthful fluid. When God mixes the bitters together, he knows how to make sweet. God can make poisons to be medicines when they are brought together in proper relationship one to another. He is making all things work together for good. My friends, the outcomes of God's plans and purposes are not doubtful and they're not negative. It is, as we shall see shortly, divine blessing. And God's control is special. It is for those who love him. These are not random mercies. It's not just purposeful but vague. God's working of all things in this world is with an eye toward those who love him. This is a description of real religion. This is true Christianity. One way that you can answer the question, am I a Christian, is this. Do you love God? Perhaps not perfectly, perhaps not completely, not as you wish you did, not as you know you should. But can you say from your soul that you love the God of heaven and earth? That you delight in him, that you adore him, that he is your all in all. You see the vital nature of that question. Because all things work together for good to those who love God. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but if you love God, isn't that wonderful? (laughs) If you're sitting here this evening saying, I am his and he is mine, everything that we've just been describing, however inadequately, that is true of you and always has been. All things working together for good. Because you love God. 
That brings us to God's call. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That language crops up again in verse 30. Whom he predestined, these he also called. Now all of this then, all of this purposeful control is for those (coughs) who are called according to the purpose of God. Called in accordance with in relation to, to carry out that intention that God has, that divine purpose. And it actually explains why some of us can say that we love God, because we've been called, because God has brought us to himself, because God has made us known. We were predestined and we were called. We heard the voice of the Lord in the gospel. We'll go into that, God willing, in more detail. But here you just understand that it's not simply that God identified you as possible candidates. It's not even that God gave you a sort of a general invitation and said, maybe you would like this. You, Christian, you've been brought to God by his gracious strength. You might be sitting here saying, I do love God. Why do I love God? I know the answer. It's because he called you. Don't ask, first of all, has God called me? Ask, do I love him? Because if you love him, you know that he's called you. God says that these are the blessings for those whose hearts have been turned toward him. Brought to God by gracious strength. Made willing in the day of Christ's power. And so you see that God's salvation has a particular people in view. The ones who have been called by him and to him and so have come to love him. And it has this particular purpose in mind. Everything in this universe, from its beginning to its end, in the great and in the small, everything that you can imagine, everything that's ever taken place in your life, everything that is true of you at this point, all of those things, they are all working together. They are all in this detailed relationship and cooperation, one with another, in order to move something forward toward that which is truly good in accordance with the purpose of the God who has called you and I hope at this point you're beginning to think lots of you know the answer but you ought to be getting a bit excited about this at this stage God's working all things together for good what is this good I want to know what is this divine intent to bless all of these things are happening God has called according to his own purpose what is this purpose what is this good that God has designed well we're told for whom God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers And this brings us to the centre and to the pinnacle of the divine plan. Predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son that that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's the good that God intends for his people. That's the purpose towards which everything in God's creation is moving forward. 
We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We have been intended from before the foundation of the world that we should be molded into the likeness of God's own Son. Now, why is that considered an act of love? Why is that a true good? Why is that the divine purpose? It is for this reason... That divine wisdom can conceive no greater. And divine love can give no better. And divine strength can work no higher than that sinners like us should become like Jesus Christ. That is the greatest good that omnipotence and omniscience, divine wisdom, divine goodness can provide. That is the highest of all possible blessings. That is the good that God has in view for his people. Now, brothers and sisters, if God said, what would you like? I'll give you the whole world or I'll make you like my son. The Christian says, world, I want to be more like Jesus Christ. That's good. That's glorious. That's wonderful. That's marvelous. In fact, more than this, take the world away. Take everything that this world offers. Take everything that I might consider good in this world. Take away my wealth, take away my health, take away my pleasures, take away my ease, take away my comforts, but do not take away your good. And the world says, wait a minute, what did you just give up? Oh, that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's lovely, it's fine, it's great. And I'm thankful for every time I taste it. But have all that and leave me Christ. I want to be conformed to the image of God's Son. I want to be like him in his character. I want to be holy as God is holy. And I see that holiness worked out in the form of a man, a servant, Jesus of Nazareth. I want to be like him in his sufferings. That's what Paul desired, wasn't it? To be conformed to his sufferings. That I might ultimately be glorified together with him. That's where he began this section that we've been looking at. The sufferings of this present time, not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Like God's son in his favour. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do you know that that's how God views you, Christian, brother, sister? God is pleased with you for Christ's sake. Like him in privilege. The son prayed, did he not, in John 17? Father, I want them to know that they have been loved as you love me. Talk about pondering prayerfully. Loved like Christ. Blessed in him. Like God's son in his glory. That's where it ends. That's where this carries us. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. My friends, this good purpose of God, this is comprehensive. This is your whole humanity. This isn't just a, a bit of your soul experience. 
This isn't just your soul rather than your body or your body rather than your soul. This is you. That you, soul and body, should be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That he should be your pattern in every part and fibre of your redeemed humanity. This is God's plan for good. That we may be conformed to the image of his son. But notice it doesn't finish there. I think we often do stop at that point. Isn't that great? That I should be like Christ. Yeah, but it doesn't terminate on you. That's not good enough. That's not high enough yet. But that in being conformed to the image of God's son, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Ultimately, the good that God intends terminates upon his son. Our good is for his glory. And his glory is the greatest good. That he should be the firstborn among many brothers. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Again, in John chapter 17, our Lord himself, as he went into the presence of his God and his Father to pray what we sometimes think of as the high priestly prayer. This is, you have given the Son authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. God's salvation is not some petty thing. God's salvation is not some shabby little deal. God's salvation is not the Almighty scrabbling around in the muck of the world that he made and trying to restore something from the filth and the emptiness. Have you thought of the vision of heaven? Have you thought of what is revealed for us in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ? A host that no man can number. From every kingdom, tribe, tongue and nation. The blood of Jesus Christ has redeemed countless multitudes. Because it is the blood of the incarnate Son of God. And there is then this great host of redeemed ones. There are innumerable angels who are sustained in their relation to the Son. And there are countless thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sinners like me and you who have been called out of darkness into his marvellous light. And as you think of that great host of the redeemed, as your eye sweeps across the plains of glory, Father, that a glorified eye can see, there are men and women and children who are glorifying the God of their salvation. And there is one who is supreme. There is one who is preeminent. There is one name upon the lips of every one of the blood-bought children of God. Glory to God and to the Lamb in the midst of the throne. Because he is preeminent. He reigns supreme. And for every single Christian that you see, for every one that you look upon in that great host, all of them, all of them owe all that they are to the firstborn, the preeminent Son of God. 
Christ is first and he is seen and known to be the first among his many brothers. When he comes into the presence of God, it is his voice that says, here am I and the children that you have given me. They are here because I am here. And their presence glorifies me and brings glory to you, my Father and my God. Christ is first among this countless host. And you, Christian, you're among them. You who deserve to be in hell. You're on your way to heaven, seated even now in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. You notice how Paul puts every part of this process in the past. Have you yet been glorified? No. But if you are now called, then your glorification is so certain that it can be spoken of as if it's already come to pass. We know that whom he has predestined, he has also called. Whom he's called, these he's also justified. Whom he has justified, these he has also glorified. My friends, it is as good as done. And the glory that we will have in and with Christ is a glory that reflects upon the Christ who saves us. What is it that makes this good? His glory is imparted to us. His excellence is put to us. His happiness is bestowed upon us. And in the great good of our complete and perfect conformity to the Son of God, everything that we possess is seen, known, understood and appreciated to have come to us in and from his Son Jesus Christ. If someone were to see you in glory and to say, how did you become what you are? You would be pointing out to him. You see the lamb. You see the slain one. You see the son of God glorified in his human flesh. He died in my place. He rose again. He's ascended to the right hand of God. He has been pleading for me. He has been shepherding me. I am his. And all that I have is a reflection of his. All that I possess, he has given to me. And this glory that I have in being conformed to him, it is his glory upon me. And so it is his glory entirely. This then is the scope of salvation. And this is what we need to know. That God, in his plan and his purpose to deliver us and to make us his own, wants to bring us to Christ Jesus. Wants to join us with Christ Jesus. Wants to keep us near Christ Jesus. Wants to make us increasingly like the Lord Jesus. And ultimately put us with Jesus Christ in the glory which is to come. You understand perhaps now why when the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate this relationship, he uses so many different images and metaphors. Why? Because there's not a one of them that covers all the bases. 
Christ Jesus is the head. You are the members of his body. Take that as a start. He is the cornerstone. And we the living stones that take our relation and direction from him. He is the vine in which the sap of life flows. And we are the branches grafted in that we might become fruitful because without him we can do nothing. He is the true husband and we are his bride defined in relation to him, formed and fashioned for his glory, brought ultimately to be pure and perfect in his sight, that he may be pleased with us when he brings us into his father's kingdom. My friends, there is not a part of your salvation. There is not an element of its experience. There is not a stage in its progress that you can detach from the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Have you been predestined? You've been predestined to be like him. Have you been called? You've been called to him that you may be in union with him. Have you been justified? You've been declared righteous in the sight of God on the basis of the righteousness of Christ put to your account, your sins having been washed away by his blood. Have you been glorified? That means that you will be like him. Now the image of the man of dust, then the image of the heavenly man. We have not seen him, but we know that when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And this, brothers and sisters, God has accomplished and is accomplishing and will accomplish. Keep feeling Paul's grammar forces me to say it's a done deal. I, I genuinely can talk about it as if it's all already happened. That's how sure and certain it is. And yet here we are in time and space. And we need to understand that where we are in this purpose and process of God, it is those links in the golden chain. And it cannot be unforged and it cannot be broken. There is no power in heaven or in earth that can prevent the onward progress of God's purposeful salvation for us. Brothers and sisters, we're on the train and it can't be derailed. We're moving along the road and we will not miss our way. We know, we know that the God of heaven and earth, almighty, all merciful, most high and most holy, that that God in his wisdom, in his goodness, in his power, he is working all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. That purpose being that we should be conformed to the image of his son. First among the host may be the incarnate Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we, in relation to him, should be bringing praise and honour and glory to his name. Do you want to get these blessings? Then get the blessed one. You don't need to get the call. You don't need to get justified. You don't need to get glorified. 
as if you could break these things up and, and hand them out one after you want this bit, you want that bit, you figure out how to fit them together. My friends, if you get Christ, if Christ gets you, you have all of it. Because all of these things belong to that great purpose by which God intends you intends to bring you into conformity to his son. The gifts all lie in the great gift. And they all come from the giver, the father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now we know this. Don't we? Do you? Do you know by faith and by experience? Have you seen these things from God's word? Have you learned these things as you've read the truth for yourself and understood the wisdom that God has given to his church down through the ages? Do you know them because you've pondered on them? You've dwelt upon them? Brothers and sisters, isn't it shameful that we give these our passing thoughts? A few moments here and there, a few rushed minutes in the morning, a few sleepy seconds in the evening. Have we stopped to consider what God is doing in Christ for and with us? Do you know by your experience? Can you sit here this evening and say, wonder of wonders, marvel of marvels, I am in the plan and purpose of a saving God. I am his. And so he is mine. We know. Praise God, we know. May God make us all to know. Not just academically, intellectually, but being instructed that we may know what it is to belong to God in Christ and to be part of this great purpose by which the Son will be gloriously magnified, world without end. Amen.